Well, we are continuing with our study through Psalm 119. If you want to turn there, today we're looking at the 14th stanza of that psalm, which is verses 105 to 112. The psalmist, just to remind you of the context, is living in the culture that is hostile to him because it's hostile to his faith. He's gone through a lot of serious trials because of that. And in this psalm, he really models for us the need to take everything to the Lord in prayer. Um, he, he actually is pointing out, making clear in this psalm, that his relationship with the Lord is the priority in his life. And so he also models for us the need to give regular attention to the word of God. He's asking God to continue to give him understanding of what the word actually says, to give him help in applying and living out that word. Well, in the 11th stanza, which is actually uh, 88 to 80, uh, I'm sorry, 81 to 88, the psalmist's frustration with what he's having to deal with kind of reaches what you might call a low point in some point, or you can say he's filled up, you know, in, in, in another sense. He says in those verses that his soul was just languishing. He describes himself as a wineskin in the smoke. A wineskin in the smoke is useless. It can't accomplish. It can't do anything. So he was feeling that way. There were wicked men who were putting forth great effort to do him harm. He was being persecuted with lies. And he cries out to the Lord and just says, help me, help me. He was definitely just overwhelmed and discouraged. But he ends that stanza with this request in verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Well, God answered that prayer. And you can see that really in the next two stanzas. The Lord kind of helped him get that firm footing back. In verses 89 to 96, the psalmist is reminded of what a firm and sure foundation he has in the Lord. He said, God has been absolutely faithful in all generations. And because God has been faithful in all generations, his word is firm and trustworthy. And so therefore, he speaks of God's law as being his delight. And the Lord used it to kind of give him renewed life. Well, then verses 97 to 104 continue this, which we might call a spiritual high of some sort. He begins by enthusiastically proclaiming, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. He's just filled with wonder at the beauty, at the sufficiency of God's law. He speaks of great advantages the Lord had given him through his law. He realizes that he's wiser than his enemies, and it's because of God's law. He realizes that he had more insight than his teachers, who apparently also were uh, unbelievers and not, and not, not, not uh, following the Lord like he was, and he had more insight. And on top of that, the psalmist recognized that through God's law, he had been given insight even greater than what comes naturally with age. He says, I'm wiser than the aged. And the end of that stanza comes with another exclamation. Verse 103, he says, Oh, how sweet are your words to my mouth. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So God had given him such a taste for the pleasing sweetness of God's word and enabled him to have a real understanding of the word alongside a hatred of things that were false and wrong. Now, both those stanzas indicate that the psalmist was greatly encouraged. 
And that encouragement was based solidly on the substance of God's word. Things were still bad. People were still working against him. It was still hard to live in a place that was so hostile to him and hostile to his faith. But the Lord had given him something of a respite from the anguish that he was feeling. Well, as we come to the stanza that we're considering today, the psalmist is still very encouraged. But he's also very much aware of the great affliction he's going through at the same time. He knows things are hard. That's not going to change anytime soon. But the Lord is seeing him through. So let's look at, uh, and let me read uh, Psalm 119, 105 to 112. Then we'll look at those verses. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. We're going to look at these verses in three sections. First, uh, verses 105 and 106, we see in those verses that the word of God is a light to our path and something that we should commit ourselves to following. Verses 107 to 110 is the second section, and there the psalmist speaks again about the significant trials and dangers that he's having to endure, but he continues to uphold his commitment to the Lord and to his word. And then thirdly, the last two verses, verses 111 and 112, the psalmist speaks as, as one who was content with the great blessing of God's testimonies, which he was committing to keep to the end of his life. So our first main point on your outline is this. The Lord has given his word as the light that is needed for one to make their way through a world that is filled with moral darkness. Psalm 105 is another one of the better known verses of Psalm 119. This was a chorus we used to sing quite a bit. In, uh, in times past, uh, I'll sing it for you. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it goes on a little bit. Some of you know that. We could have sang along. But that's, where, but the, but that, that's, that's one of the better known vo- verses of this, of this psalm. And so it compares the word of God to a lamp that guides our footsteps and directs us in the right path. There's been a few times uh, in my life, and I'm sure some of you have some same similar experiences, where you've been in a place where it's been so dark that you really could not see anything. Um, that gets kind of scary, especially when you're outside or even inside, but you can't, you can't, even, you can't even see the, your hand in front of your face. It can be so dark sometimes. Well, the time that's most vivid to me when that happened in my life is something I'm sharing with you before, but if it's well here, so I'm going to tell you again, since some of you have heard this story before. It was when I was actually, in much younger days, leading a climb up the back of the chimneys um, near Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And we got caught by the darkness. This was in March, and we really shouldn't have started as late as we did because we got caught by the darkness. Well, the majority of the youth group that I was leading and the other leaders were able to get, get to the path and get down the mountain before it got too dark. But five of us weren't able to do that. So myself, another leader, 
and three very scared high school girls. And so uh, we actually were able to lead them over really a rocky ledge. Uh, we actually were able to lead them over a pretty dangerous cliff. There wasn't too long after that, a couple of years after that, that somebody fell off that cliff and died. Um, because myself and the other guy who was leading, David, had both made that hike multiple times, and so we knew it quite well. But after we got over that cliff and we began trying to find the path, which was a wide path, you know, it's one that was built in just to take you down, we couldn't find it. And um, I still remember, you know, feeling around, you know, because you can't see anything, feeling around trying to find the path. And I still remember, I can, this is very vivid in my mind, because I took a step and I started going down the mountain, the side of the mountain. I thought, oh, this is not right. <laughs> and so I got myself back up quick as I could and said, guys, we can't go any further. I don't know where we are. I cannot find the path. So we're just going to have to wait for somebody to come with a flashlight who can help us. Of course, no cell phones at this time. This is back in the black and white days. <laughs> so we just had to wait. About 2 a.m., some people from our group did come up, and uh, we saw the flashlights at a distance. I mean, light, when it's completely dark, you can see it really well. And um, we were able to make our way down the mountain with a lot of really good memories. <laughs> but one thing that's clear, in times of extreme darkness, light is really, really important. Well, the psalmist was in a place of extreme moral darkness. I mean, unbelief, idolatry, complete rejection of God's moral law really was the norm, which is really pretty much the norm for us now, too, in our nation. I mean, there's much moral darkness in the United States, and it seems to be getting darker all the time, quite honestly. So we need light just as much as the psalmist needed light, and it's available for us and the word of God. In fact, we actually have more light than he did because in our day, of course, the scriptures have been completed, Old and New Testament. The psalmist lived in a time when the Old Testament scriptures were still being written, and actually he was one of the ones that, that God used to, to, work, to write those scriptures. Of course, there was no New Testament, but he had the light he needed to be able to stand firm in his dark time, but we have even more available to us. So, on your outline, from verse 105, what we see is this. All of Scripture, in its literary variety, its literary variety, gives light in both big-picture understanding and focused choices of everyday life. The images of a lamp to our feet and a light to our path really are very similar, but the, and they are saying much the same thing, but there is a little bit of a difference. The lamp is more like what we can, would consider a flashlight, that was especially focused on the next step that was taken. It was a little more specific, you know, uh, more focused in that way. The light that is spoken of would be more like a floodlight that helps you see at a wider angle and further down the road. So you need both. When we think of the Word of God being like a flood lamp, floodlight that actually helps us see further down the road and at wider angles, I think that reminds us how we need the Word of God to actually give us a big-picture view of the world. I mean, there are some big-picture truths 
that we absolutely need to have if we're going to be able to make it in a dark world without falling off the edge. So let me just mention a few of them. For example, it starts with this. The Bible is the inspired word of God and therefore is the authority and should be the authority in our life. That is a big picture light that is so crucial. Well, from the word of God, we know that our God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We know that God created and sustains the world. We know that God created each one of us and that we all say he sustains our life and therefore we are accountable to him as our creator to honor him with our life. We know that we all fall short of that goal of honoring him with our life. We know that our sin deserves the judgment of God, so we know that we're in deep trouble. We also know from that word that God the Father in his grace sent God the Son to earth to live and die as a man. And as the God-man, he did live in perfect obedience to the word of God. And when he died on the cross, he died as a substitute for sinners. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are saved from our sin and we're made right with God. And then God the Spirit also dwells within each believer. And it's by his strength we're able to live the Christian life. Those are big picture kind of truths. And if you have those big picture kind of truths, it gives you a tremendous advantage when you're thinking about what's going on in the world around. We need floodlight type truths like that. But we also need his word as a lamp or a flashlight to give us specific guidance in the issues, the everyday steps that we take with our feet during the day. For example, his word reminds us every day that God is the one who gives you your daily bread. A good percentage of you have probably had breakfast this morning. You thank God for that daily bread that he gives you. That word tells us we should honor our parents. That's the right thing to do. The word tells us that as employees, we should always do our work as unto the Lord. So be a good worker. Work hard. Be responsible. Be dependable. The word tells us to flee immorality. So that means when we take steps and uh, uh, as, we, as we're living our life and we are tempted, we need to take steps to flee, to move away from those temptations. The word tells us that as Christians, we're supposed to be active in a local church. The word tells us that we need to be people who pray. So our days need to include prayer at various times. The word tells us we're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. All these are especially flashlight type helps in living out that life in the context of the big picture. You need both. You need the word as a light. You need the word as a lamp. Well, in this point, I also point out here that there is a literary variety in the word of God. What I mean by that is the scriptures communicate to us in different ways. For example, part of scripture is poetry. That's what we're reading right now. Psalms is part of is, is, is Hebrew poetry. Uh, the Bible also communicates to us using history. You read history different than you read poetry. The Bible sometimes lays out very detailed laws for us, like the Ten Commandments, for example. Sometimes there are prophecies. You read prophecy different than you read history. Sometimes the word of God gives us warnings, warnings that we're supposed to take very seriously. Sometimes the word of God is written in letters 
like Paul wrote in various churches addressing various issues. Sometimes the word of God convicts us very directly of our sin. There's convicting verses, which we need that. Sometimes it, it actually gives us promises about his presence that we know he never leaves us or forsakes us. There is a great literary, literary variety in the word of God, and we need all of it. We need all of it. Well, look next at verse 106. He says, I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. So here we see that the psalmist not only recognized the light that he had received and the word of God is a lamp, he also realized he needed to make a conscious commitment to keep those words, to do what they say. So our next point is this. God's righteous ordinances are so vital to life that believers should make wholehearted commitments to walk in faith and obedience to God's word. He says, I have sworn to swear is to bind yourself by an oath. So this tells us that the psalmist was deadly serious about living his life with the word of God as the lamp to his feet and the light to his path. He was not content just to know those things in his head. He committed himself to keep God's righteous ordinances in his actual life. There's a place for making vows in life. We should be very careful about doing it, and we probably shouldn't make a whole lot of them. But there are places for making vows. One of the vows that many people make is a vow to your husband or to your wife when you get married. I mean, a key part of the wedding ceremony is literally exchanging vows. You're making an oath is what you're doing. Well, that commitment is intended by God to be between one man, one woman for a lifetime. And that is certainly a serious, serious vow, but it's one that's worth making. Another vow that Christians make that I think you consider this a vow is when they commit their lives to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We are receiving Christ as our Savior, and in doing so, we're rejecting all other religions at the same time. We are rejecting any hope of being good enough for God on our own. We know we need a Savior, and so we've, and so we've accepted him. We're also embracing Jesus not only as the one who saves us from sin, but also who is the Lord of our life. So when you're embracing him as Lord of your life, you're committing to walk in obedience to his word. If he's in charge, if he's the king, if he's the Lord, you're walking in obedience, which really is what is going on here. Now, if you have become a Christian, been baptized into a local church, then you've already made that commitment. You don't have to wonder, I wonder if I should make this. If you're a Christian, you've already made it. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, you've already made this vow between you and God. You are saying that you know the word of God is your lamp. You know the word of God is your light. And therefore, you're committing yourself to Jesus Christ as your Lord to live out his, uh, your life under his law, under his word. So as a Christian, like I said, you don't, have to, you don't have to wonder whether you should make this vow or not. You've already made it. Now you just have to continue to grow in your understanding of his word, continue to grow in, 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 uh, in living and in the practical out, uh, outworking of that in your life. Now we make this commitment always, like we make any commitment before the Lord, trusting in his grace to enable us to make these commitments. I mean, none of us are strong enough strong-willed enough, 
smart enough to do this stuff on their own because we're such great people. We always are dependent on God's grace to give us the help we need to make, as we make these commitments to honor him. And then when we fail, which we all have failed and will continue to fail, we have a promise. One of the lamps uh, of uh, flashlight promises is if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as believers, we can absolutely relate to what the psalmist is saying here. We agree the Lord has given us his word as a light. We agree he's given us his word as a, as a lamp in a, in, a, in a place that is just full of moral darkness. And we also agree to the need to commit ourselves to following him as our Lord, especially specifically Jesus Christ as our Lord. Well, in the next four verses, the psalmist speaks again about that moral darkness that he's dealing with personally and how he responded. So our second main point is this. In this world filled with moral darkness, believers often find themselves living out their faith in the midst of great afflictions and dangerous threats. I'm going to read again for you, 107 to 110. <coughs> I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. So the psalmist has committed himself to God, to his word, to be his lamp, to be his light. The Lord has given him strength, has given him help, but he doesn't point want to he actually can't put the trials out of his out of his mind because they're there he's faced with them on a regular basis so he admits in verse 107 that he is exceedingly afflicted now this is going beyond just saying i'm having a hard time or i'm afflicted using this word he's saying exceedingly this is a big deal the things that i'm going through matter of fact this could actually be translated and some of your versions may have it this way I am bowed down under heavy afflictions. That's the visual image that he's given here, bowed down, because the weight is just overwhelming. So this is a very somber kind of picture. His, everything he's dealing with is just, just a weight on him. Things are hard. Things are really, really hard. Well, here's how I describe what's going on here in the next point. Trials are to be expected and are actually necessary to the growth and maturity of believers. But the Lord can be trusted to give quickening grace so that they can be endured. Quickening grace. When we think about being bowed down under heavy afflictions, we need to keep in mind that trials are to be expected. You don't necessarily look for them, but you expect them to come. In fact, we go to the Word of God to find an enlightening lamp to our feet, about this particular issue. It's in 1 Peter, and we could find other places, but one thing Peter did when he wrote this letter, he wrote to people who were dealing with severe afflictions, persecution especially, and trying to help them come to grips with this. So let me read for you 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the believers that Peter was writing to were dealing with what he would describe as fiery trials, which I think exceedingly afflicted is probably a pretty good uh, synonym with fiery trials. Well, one of the things that Peter said was that they would only last for a little while. Now, the trials, in other words, the trials were strong for a short season and always with a purpose. Now, he's saying for a little while, he could actually be saying there, in light of eternity, it's for a little while. Or he could be saying the particular trial they're going through is not going to last forever. Whatever, there's going to be an ending point. So Peter also speaks of the trials as being necessary. They're necessary. Why are they necessary? He said, because they give proof of your faith. When believers go through difficult trials and then continue to trust the Lord all the way through, they are giving evidence of the genuineness of their faith. It's a proof. It's an evidence. And that gives us further assurance about our relationship with the Lord. It gives a testimony to others as well who may be going through hard things also. The trials cause us to grow in the Lord. Often the best lessons that we learn in life are the lessons that happened that we learned when we were suffering. That's oftentimes the things that really stay with you and stick with you. Well, that big picture light to our path tells us that the Lord is committed to conforming us to the image of Christ. That's a big picture thing. He's committed to conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, what exactly that's going to look like is going to look different in each of us, but trials is going to be a big part of it, that big picture kind of image. But he also gives us that lamp to kind of help us to walk through each of those trials. And he wants us to learn obedience in the things that we suffer. So, as Peter says, don't be surprised. When these fiery trials come, when this exceeding affliction comes, don't be surprised. They are things that are part of life. They are necessary, and God is using them. He's using them as, and Christians, as Christians to cause us to be more conformed to the image of Christ. But we also need to note that the Lord gives us the grace we need to endure the trials. Back in uh, verse 107, the psalmist says, Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. In other words, renew the spiritual life in me that's already there. Stir things up again. Cause the spirit to... To, kind of, to, to just kind of fill me anew for the task that's ahead of me that I'm dealing with right now. Because he says he's promised in his word that he would give us what, he need, what we need. For example, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's, he's begun a good work. He continues with you in that work. He's written in his word that he has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's a good promise to keep in mind. He's promised that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He tells us that he's written his word on our hearts. That's part of the new covenant promise. If you're a believer, his word has been written on your heart. Those are the kind of things that kind of, kind of undergird you and enable you to continue to walk through the path even though you're bowed down by exceedingly hard afflictions. So whatever those afflictions are, we know that God has a good purpose because the big picture truth tells us that. We know that there is a reason. It's not just haphazard. 
They are purposeful. Okay, let's look at verses 108 to 109. He says, Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. So in these verses, we see the next point, which is in the midst of great and even dangerous trials, believers are called to give plentiful praise to the Lord and trust him to teach them as they press forward, to teach us as we press forward. In verse 108, the psalmist speaks of giving free will offerings to the Lord, uh, even at a time where he's being exceedingly afflicted. I'm giving free will offerings where I'm really bowed down because I'm just overwhelmed with hard things. The idea of a free will offering, of course, comes from the sacrificial system of, a, of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and their free will in the sense that they were not forced to do it. Instead, they offered them gladly to the Lord. So the idea is, that is offering gladly and often, often uh, generously, bountifully, plentifully. And you'll also notice here that these free will offerings are from his mouth. These are free will offerings of his mouth to the Lord. So what are free will offerings of your mouth? It's your prayers. It's your praise. As we were singing praise a while ago, that was a free will offering of your mouth. As we pray our prayers, that's free will offering of your mouth. As you give thanksgiving to God, that's a free will offering of your mouth. As you make petitions and ask him for things, in your life, in your circumstances, that's a free will offering of your mouth. As you testify and thank him for his provision, that's a free will offering. As you say, thank you, Lord, for my daily bread, that's a free will offering of your mouth. All of those are things that come out of our mouth freely offered and saying, thank you, Lord. Even if everything around you is really hard, like his was, you still are called to give free will offerings of our mouth. It's just really too easy to be overwhelmed with the darkness to the point, I don't know, that we just kind of are overwhelmed. But here, the psalmist is admitting that it's hard, but he's not so hard that he's forgetting to praise his God in the midst of it. The psalmist also asked the Lord to accept these offerings. That's exactly what he says, accept the free will offerings of my mouth. Well, that's a, something to think about. I mean, how can a, a flawed, weak, sinful person have their prayers accepted by the one true, holy, and all-glorious God? There's a disconnect there. Because, because of our sin, because of our weakness, even because of all the failures, we don't really measure up to his holiness. So just on their own, our prayers are not acceptable. But this is where the big picture comes in mind, comes into play again. Our words can only be accepted by the Holy God when they are offered through the Messiah, offered through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And at that point, they're not only accepted, they're welcomed, they're encouraged we are told to come with confidence to the throne of grace, especially in our time of need. Come with confidence. So, yes, every free will offering of our mouth is accepted if you come to him in Christ. Everything, is, and how encouraging that is, especially when you're in a time of need and, and difficulty. 
Well, part of the psalmist's prayers to the Lord include a request for the Lord to teach him his ordinances. He knows the word of God is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He's committed himself to keep those righteous ordinances in his life. He trusts the Lord to give him that quickening grace that he needs and uh, to keep the, the, the promises that are in the word to kind of encourage him there. But the psalmist wants to know more. He wants an even greater understanding of God's word. One thing that's always so encouraging, and I think we could have lots of testimonies to this if we thought about this for a while. To me, it's always just so encouraging when you're reading through scripture and something pops out at you that you hadn't noticed before. Or maybe it's verses that you've read a lot and all of a sudden, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that application. I mean, those kind of things really get your attention, really are so helpful. And we get more of those in times of suffering than oftentimes in other circumstances. But he's talking about that. I want more of that. I want you to give me greater insight, greater understanding. These are hard trials, and I need to know you better and better in the midst of these. In verse 109, the psalmist gives another insight into how dangerous his situation really is. It says, my life is continually in my hand. And again, according to how your translation is there, what he's saying is his life was constantly in danger. That's what he means by that. His life was always in danger. I mean, it was a regular fear that he had that he could lose his life because, again, because of how of the people that were so hostile toward him because of his faith. Several examples we can see of this in the Bible. David may have written this psalm. We don't know for sure. But uh, David had that often. When Saul was king, David lived in constant apprehension from about open violence that could be directed toward him at any time. Matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 27, 1, David said to himself, he says, he was, it's written in such a way where he's saying this to himself, I will one day perish by the hand of Saul. Now, he trusted in the Lord, but at the same time, he was well aware of the dangerous situation he was in. He knew Saul was out to kill him. You remember the, you remember the Apostle Paul situation? He said that the Holy Spirit had testified to him that bonds and imprisonment awaited him everywhere he went. He knew that was coming. And then he said he was ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem when he was going toward Jerusalem. I'm ready to die there for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew death was a real possibility. He kept going. Our Savior was in constant danger. We read often in the Gospels of how the religious leaders were making plans to kill him, coming up with schemes to try to get to him, asking him questions so that he may incriminate himself, so the Roman authorities would be upset. They were always after him. When you know your life is in constant danger, the psalmist models for us we must not forget God's law in the midst of that. Keep his word close Call it to mind often. There's a quote on your outline from Graham Scroggie. He made this helpful, I can't think, comment. He says, the man who carries his life in his hand should carry the law in his heart. So we hold on to God's law so we won't be tempted to compromise, for one thing. And his law actually gives us firm footing on what we know is right, even when we're tempted and uh, to, to go a way that we shouldn't go. His word gives us light to see the situation properly. His word is a lamp 
to help us to see how to make specific applications for what our circumstances might be. Now, there's one more thing to note about the moral darkness that the psalmist was dealing with, and that's in point C. In a dark world, there will be those who seek to deceptively destroy the life or the faith of believers, so it's vital to stay on the Lord's path. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. Snares, of course, are what are used to trap animals. Well, these snares were laid to trap the man who's writing this psalm. Sometimes the wicked people who laid the snare were doing it to take the psalmist's life. They were trying to actually kill him. I mean, we know that Saul hatched several deceptive traps to try to get David so he could have him killed. We know that Daniel's contemporaries laid a trap for him so that he, when he was caught praying, he would be thrown to the den of lions. The religious leaders, as we mentioned in Jesus' day, were constantly laying out questions to try to trap him, uh, to get him in trouble. I mean, those things were just constant with them. Well, this verse also gives the indication that the snare was not merely, or maybe even not primarily, to cause physical harm, but to try to get them to give up his faith. Notice how it's written. You'll see that, you can see that because the psalmist says that in spite of these traps, I have not gone astray from your precepts, as if that's what they're trying to get me to do. They're trying to get me to go astray, to turn away, to, to, to question the Lord, to turn away from their faith. This is a danger that is very real in a world that is full of moral darkness. I've shared in the past about all kinds of snares that I've encountered in years past where people were trying to get me to give up my belief, for example, that all scripture is inspired by God. Again, one of the most fundamental big light kind of uh, truths that we need to be aware of. It's amazing how much pressure there is to try to get you to give up that belief. There are religious professors in colleges, seminaries. There are ministers. There are fellow Christians in the world today who are trying to get you to compromise your faith in the authority of the Scripture. They may not mean this as a trap. May not at all. May just be an innocent conversation. I don't know. I'm not sure what the motives would be. But it ends up being that because if you fall into it, if you begin to doubt certain parts of the Scripture, it won't be long before you begin to doubt other parts. And it won't be long before you end up having doubts about the Scripture as a whole, whether it's really even trustworthy or not. And next thing you know, you're sliding down the mountain because you've given up the light. You've given it up. You can't see anymore. Nothing is clear like it was before. So these snares are big deals, traps trying to get people to go away that is not the right way and to give up the light that we know we have. That's a very real danger. The final two verses, the psalmist speaks once again about the great treasure believers have in the word of God. So look at 111 and 112. He says, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. So our last main point is this. The Lord enables his children to have a remarkable contentment in the challenge of a dark world, which enables them to persevere in faith all the way to the end. So in the midst of great moral darkness, in the midst of real physical and spiritual danger, the psalmist has found contentment. 
He has a lamp for his feet. He has a light for his path and the word of God. And now he has two more affirmations to make about the scripture. The first one is this. The testimonies of the Lord bring a heartfelt joy, a heartfelt joy to those who recognize what a valuable inheritance they are. It's interesting here that he refers to the testimonies of God or the scriptures as his forever inheritance. When the Jews spoke of an inheritance, they generally were speaking of the land, the promised land that was promised to them through Abraham as, as their inheritance. And, of course, it was through Joshua that they were able to conquer and take that land. Well, but that's not the inheritance the psalmist is talking about. This is another example. We've mentioned that Daniel is a possibility of someone who, who could, may have written this psalm because there are so many applications here. This is another one. This is that would, that would especially apply in Daniel's situation. Daniel was living as an exile in Babylon, away from the promised inheritance, away from the promised land. Matter of fact, he would never have that inheritance again. He would never again live in that land the rest of his life. But he still had an inheritance. The inheritance he has are the testimonies of God. This was an inheritance that couldn't be taken away from him. I was thinking about this in my own life as far as inheritance is concerned. My my mother died, my dad died uh, probably over 10 years ago now. My mother died a couple years ago, and as one of her children, I received an inheritance. But the main inheritance that I received from my mother and father was not money. The main inheritance I received from my mother and father was their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the main inheritance. And coupled with that, a firm belief that the scriptures were, in fact, the word of God. That is a wonderful inheritance, and if you've got it, you are blessed. That is a great inheritance. So that inheritance is beautiful and is so valuable. The psalmist speaks of the scriptures here not just for their importance as a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He says they're the joy of his heart. The word of God brought true joy to his heart in a world full of moral darkness because they were solid truth that he could build on, that he could go to and hold on to. They exalt the triune God. They reveal the good news of salvation for sinners. They give us guidance that can be trusted. They give us promises that we know we can count on. They lead us to the joy of the Lord that comes from salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This reminds me, I'm going to sing another song for you here. This reminds me really of Jeremiah 15, 16. And the reason I know that verse is because of the song. Now, this one, some of you may not know as much, but here's how it goes. Thy words were found and I ate them. That's the Bible. Thy words, I'm sorry, over. Thy words were found and I ate them. Thy words became for me a joy. And the delight of my heart, for I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts, O Lord God of hosts. That's almost verbatim what Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says. He talks about the word of God being his delight. Just the same thing the psalmist is saying, just something that is so delightful. That's the way to have a joyful contentment. 
in a world filled with moral darkness. Last point we see is this. By God's grace, believers recognize the privilege they have in his word and commit themselves to obey his statutes from their heart. Way back in verse 36, the psalmist prayed this prayer. He prayed, incline my heart toward your testimonies and not to covetous gain. In other words, I recognize how many sinful desires that are in me to go the wrong way. I want you to incline my heart toward your word. That's what I need help with. The covetous desires are very real. I need to be inclined toward your word. Well, he asked for that internal inclination toward the word of God. Like I said, that's, a, that's his prayer back in verse 36 of Psalm 119. Well, here we see the Lord has definitely answered his prayer. Because he sees the word of God really as the light to his feet and the, light and the lamp for his path. He sees the word of God as a joyful inheritance that is going to be his for the rest of his life in spite of what the unbelieving world around him does. And God has certainly inclined his heart toward the testimonies of the Lord. So because of that work of God, he can say here, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. God did the inclination first because he'd inclined that, I can incline my heart towards you. Every step in life, all the way to the end of our life, is going to be taken in conflict with sin. Every one of us have things inside of us like laziness, pride, doubt, things that are constantly fighting, battling us as we continue and walk in our way through. There's going to be challenges from the outside uh, to every step of the way because it's not going to be consistent with what the culture is saying we should be doing. There's going to be challenges from Satan himself throwing out fiery darts to try to knock us down, to try to get us to doubt, to try to get us to sin. But the Lord is gracious to incline our hearts to hold firm to his statutes all the way to the end, step by step, all the way to the end. His word is that never-ending light for our path. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these just testimonies of the psalmist himself about how you had given him so much insight in the midst of some really, really difficult times, times where he knew his life was in danger. But you so worked in his heart, and thank you, Lord, that he wrote it down. Thank you for inspiring him to write these words down so we could be helped, so we could be encouraged. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word, and I do thank you for those big-picture lights so that we can see the overall world, uh, Christian worldview of things. Just even knowing that you created the world is, puts us way ahead of a lot of people because that makes so much of a difference. Thank you for giving us those big-picture truths. Thank you for actually guiding us on those individual flashlight-type step-by-step kind of steps. We need that as well. All of us deal with things. that it's, We think, Lord, what do I do now? How do I handle this situation? How do I address this temptation? How do I address this conversation? Whatever it might be. Lord, thank you that you have given us what we need to be able to do that, even though the world is going a different direction from us. Continue to give us that help. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. I realize that I have not measured up to what you have called me to be. 
that inclination towards your word really is not there like it should be. But, Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world for sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I want to commit my life. I want to take that vow that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I want to live the rest of my life with him as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.